Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, comedy, taboos and free speech, where's the line? My guest is Ricky Gervais. He's an award-winning stand-up comedian, actor, writer, producer and director. He achieved international success with his TV series The Office. That mockumentary about the hapless boss David Brent was remade for audiences in America, Sweden, France, Germany and Brazil, proving that bad management is an international phenomenon. Right, that is it. Slow down, you move too fast. Solomon's here. All part of the job. What's going on? Put my stapler inside the jelly again. That's the third time he's done it. It wasn't even funny the first time. Why has he done that? Just told him once that I don't like jelly. And trust the way it moves. Yeah, you showed him a weakness. He pounced. You should know about that. He's won more awards than would fit on most mantelpieces, including BAFTAs, Emmys and Golden Globes. Ricky then hosted the Globes for four years and managed to upset Mel Gibson, Robert Downey Jr and Caitlyn Jenner with his jokes along the way. His latest series is a six-part dark comedy for Netflix, Afterlife. It follows Tony struggling to come to terms with the death of his wife. Why don't you throw yourself into your work, OK? That's what depressed people do sometimes. It's hard for me to throw myself into my work when my work is often talking to a plumber on the estate who's grown a potato that looks like Lionel Richie. That made the front cover. It did look like him, though. You know, actually, this is a good time. We've got quite a lot of exciting leads at the moment. Leads? Yeah. Like with Woodward and Bernstein. Yeah, they are leads. Go on, what leads? What leads? All right. Do we so have? a woman called in the other day. When she drags her dustbin, it sounds like Chewbacca. No. After contemplating suicide, he chooses life, but his coping strategy is to do or say whatever he wants, no matter what the consequences may be. Ricky Gervais, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hello. Lovely to have you along. My pleasure. Afterlife is a comedy which is distilled, I think, from a mix... You could describe it as death, grief, suicide, drugs, old age, dementia. Uh, features funny as stuff, well. right? It's very funny, isn't it? <laughs> what, is, what is funny about those things at the extremes of human experience? I don't know they're, they're funny per se, um, but you can certainly look at them from a, a funny way. And I think that humour is to get us over bad stuff. You know, the... In my stand-up, I, I, I often include real anecdotes about what happened at my mum's funeral or my dad's funeral. Um, and I explain it in terms of, you know, it's what they would have wanted and it's a coping mechanism and and uh, and life life carries on. Um, and I think the, the humour from a, a, a classically a misanthrope, I suppose, um, comes from him not being happy with his lot. There's two, you know, uh, uh, David Brent, it was the opposite. He, uh, we laughed at the blind spot, you know. He was, we thought he was uh, thankfully out of his misery because he didn't know we were laughing at him. We laughed at the difference between how he saw himself and how we saw him and, the, and, and that's one way uh, of doing it. Whereas with this character, they do know 
where they stand and what their life's like, and they're not happy. And comedy is usually a regular guy or girl trying to do something they're not equipped to do. So actually, we feel sorry for him. We know why he's acting like that. It's a good theory. He treats it like a superpower. Um, But what he's trying to do is feel better. And And that's what's eluding him. He's not feeling better. He tries everything. He tries to hurt people's feelings, to punish the world. He tries to turn himself into a psychopath so he doesn't feel anymore. But he's not a psychopath. He's a decent man who lost everything, who put all his eggs in one basket. He didn't have a network of friends and work because he didn't care. He couldn't wait to get home to his wife. He wanted 50 years with her and he was denied it. And, And it was very important to me that I made the relationship real. It's not a coffee advert. They're not people talking to each other like they've just met or it's Valentine's Day. They're getting drunk together every night because they love each other more than anything. You know what I mean? That's a, it's a real relationship. And so the balance of what he lost and his grief was was really important. So we you understood... You sound quite upset about him, actually. Oh, it'd be terrible. It'd be a terrible place to be. Because it's also about when you've got a great life and you're happy in your head, nothing matters. But when you're not happy in your own head, it doesn't matter what's happening in the real world. It doesn't matter if the sun's out. It doesn't matter if you've got a nice job. It doesn't matter. It, um, you're in pain. And he's, a, he's an animal with a thorn in his paw. And he's angry, you know. And he's, he's just trying stuff. He's just trying stuff. And deep down, he doesn't want to end it all, I don't think. But living hurts him. And he just wants it to be better. Your character, Tony, likens his self-destructiveness to a superpower. Yeah. I couldn't help wondering whether writing it is a kind of superpower for you because you're yeah. able to go into all these territories yeah. and you've just That's laid exactly out right. eloquently. Yeah. It must I, feel a bit like being liberated. Being a writer-director, you know, we create our own heroes and villains as role-play for the soul and no one really gets hurt. So you can try all those things that happen in real life and no one really gets hurt. But you feel the same. You cry at sad things and you laugh at funny things. But it's a fiction and you can perfect the real world. You can have all the realism, but then, unlike the real world, you can reward goodness and punish bad behaviour. I suppose we live vicariously through his freedom. Not that it's doing him any good, not that we swap places with him, but... Um, but it's interesting you talk about him as him, but in some way, you know, you sound very close to him, you've invented this character, you've yeah. lived with him for long enough. Yeah. But are there then aspects of your your own character, obviously not in this dire situation that he's in, yeah. but are there bits of this and this Definitely. desire to just go and tell the world to go to hell? Well, that are you? Um, I think everyone should tell the truth. And the reason we don't tell the truth is because we want to be popular or we don't want to hurt people's feelings or we worry about the consequences. Um, you know, the, the mugging scene, without giving anything away, if we're mugged, we hand over our money because we don't want to get hurt or we've got a baby in a stroller or they know where we live. We worry about the consequences. So with Tony, he says, I don't care about the consequences. Bring it on. Now, that's, that's very, that's, that's exciting the children's menu scene. That happened to me in real life. In real life, of course, when I said, I'll have the fish fingers and beans, the waitress said, oh, um, that's the children's menu. I went, oh, okay, I'll have the cheese on toast. But in here, I can I can put that right. You get to eat all those fish fingers, that double portion of 5 95 fish exactly. fingers. Yes, exactly. Um, so uh, uh, even though there were vegan fingers, um, uh, so yeah, I can say the... the, the 
the kid with me who played my nephew, I could tell he wasn't really enjoying these three fingers. <laughs> so that brings us to the lines around comedy, free speech, what's taboo. It's probably a, a word you raise your eyes to heaven when you're, when you're asked, but do you believe there are still taboos in comedy? Well, it depends. I don't... I think people often get offended when they mistake the subject of a joke with the actual target. And that's the important thing. What is the joke? Where's the joke landing? Who's the butt of the joke? What's really the butt of the joke? What are we really saying by the joke? Who's really offended? So there's no subject you shouldn't talk about. It depends on the joke. Like, there's no subject you wouldn't ask me a question about. It depends on the answer. It depends how it's discussed. And I think people assume that if something's uh, in comedy... uh, the, the, we're making fun of the subject as opposed to it could be it could be anti or something or pro something you've led with your chin though haven't you so what would be a question that I would ask you that you would consider would there be taboos around that for instance well only in the sense that I, I might say well that's that's my business or that's private or I don't want I don't think it's your right to know it it's your right to ask it and that's all I'm doing with comedy I'm asking questions I'm not telling them how they should feel that you have got every right to laugh, be disgusted, walk out. I'm just saying it's my right to say it. That's all I'm saying. But if if you listen, you'll probably find it's okay. It's okay because when someone says to me, that's offensive, I want to say, well, actually, no, what you mean is you found it offensive. There's nothing intrinsically offensive about this thing, only emotion. And then when they say, I was offended by that, I want to say, well, why? You've got to formulate an argument here. And often they, I go, well, you shouldn't talk about that. I go, well, why? People discuss well, let's things. Go, let's give you yeah. an example. It is actually from Afterlife. And it was probably just one of the really, I think probably the only thing that really jarred a bit with me was normalising the use of the C word when it's right. directed towards a child in yeah. a scene. It's just very funny. Yeah. But I suppose I'm of a, a generation of women and perhaps feminists who've thought about this a bit and just sort of wonder why it's everywhere and is that okay? Well, it's not that it's okay. It's uh, just two different things here because it's one where it's in a fiction, it's a character doing it and we know he's trying to hurt people's feelings. I think we have to talk of it outside afterlife to have a decent discussion about it. In the real world, is it okay? Um, Well, again, it depends. I, I don't use that word and I explain this to Americans all the time on Twitter. I don't use it with any misogyny. In fact, I don't think I've, I'd ever use it against a woman. I use it um, sometimes even as a term of endearment or to show how someone is despicable. I don't think it's the strongest word either. In fact, I, think there's, I don't think it goes far enough in some places. It would be inappropriate to call Hitler the C word. It wouldn't be enough. So it's all relative. It depends. And you're right. It's inappropriate to call a 10-year-old boy that word. But tone is not being appropriate. And does that mean, when you think about these things, when it sounds like that, you'd, you've structured an argument, right? Whether I kind of agree with you or not, you've, you know, you yes, have an, have. an answer to that. And that's the other thing about comedy. I think people sometimes think that a comedian goes out and tries to say what they want and hurt people's feelings. It's ridiculous. Um, those routines are honed. By the time someone sees a routine that I've done on Netflix, I've tested that to about 800,000 people. I've looked at it from every angle. I've made it bulletproof. I can justify any joke I've ever made and I can tell them what the target is as opposed to what just the subject is. The first, well, first of the 800,000 is probably your girlfriend, isn't it? Because you often run stuff past her. And I think yeah. you once said... I run it past her for a joke. And if she says, please don't say that in public, 
I know it's good. Well, when she says, please don't say that, she's worried about the backlash. So she's worried about how I'll be perceived and the stick I'll get. And then we discuss it and we just make sure that the joke is justified, whatever people think. Because if everyone in the world thought the joke was offensive or didn't get it, then there's something wrong with the joke. But that's just not true. It shows the subjective nature of jokes and morality. So what I meant was, just because you're offended, it doesn't mean you're right. Some people are offended by equality. What are we to do about that? Well, we're to ignore them. <laughs> Free speech is obviously very important to you. It is. Uh, it's a privilege. In, it's, a, it's, it's In amazing. this context of humour, but also beyond it, you, you've tweeted about free speech being limited. It's a question we tend to come back to just quite a lot on, the, on this show, on both sides of the Atlantic at yeah. the moment, because there's something in the air that feels like it might be uh, encroaching on it. How worried... Do you feel about that broadly? We have to push back and protect it. And also, free speech is constrained. It is it does have it has many caveats and I, that I agree with. I don't think you should be able to say anything you want because I agree with libel and I agree with slander and I agree with um, food packaging and I agree with watersheds. But what I don't agree with is someone thinking you mustn't say something because they don't like it. That's what I don't agree with. And if you don't agree with freedom of speech for people who you don't agree with, you don't agree with freedom of speech. So that would, and I'm going to take you into an area, something you joked about in the past that caused a bit of a fuss, and that was the Caitlyn Jenner, Bruce Jenner, was around yeah. the transgender and how you know, could you have a joke using their previously assigned gender to make the joke. It's in the news again in a different form this week, which is why I refer to it, but that's a joke you would stand by. It is, uh, every step of the way. Um, the joke I did at the Golden Globes, where I say, uh, Caitlyn Jenner, what a, a hero for... I, I can't remember the, that word. It's in your memory now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, uh, uh, she uh, broke down stereotypes and bravely smashed down barriers. She didn't do a lot for women drivers. So... The joke there is about this person's behaviour. But it was also about her previous gender uh, assignment. So, so I, it goes like this. The, the, joke, the actual joke goes like this. Oh, yeah, I come out um, to go and go, I go, relax, I'm going to be nice tonight. I've changed. Not as much as Bruce Jenner. Now Caitlin, of course. So that gets me into the joke. And I discuss this in Humanity. And I say um, that I dead-named her. And I hadn't heard of that term anymore. And you can't dead-name her. But that, that's ludicrous. She was called Bruce Jenner. Why are... And, and then, sorry, Karen. The reason that I brought that up now, in the context just at the time we're interviewing you, is a column written on transgender, transgender and transgender into by a Times columnist this week, where people complained to Twitter about it. And Twitter then took this complaint rather seriously and said, well, we're not going to don't think this time, but it had that undertone that the social media platforms are getting a bit more onerous around this sort of thing. Is this something that we need to push back against or do we uh, simply accept get, it because again, it's a taste it, question? It depends. Really? I think they were banning people for refusing, is it refusing to use the preferred pronouns? Um, uh, again, I, I, if someone wants to be called he or she, I, I'll do it. But I also I also agree with someone's right who doesn't want to be told what pronouns to use. I'll do it because I'm quite a polite chap and and it's not the hill to die on. If you want to be called he, fine, I'll call you he. I don't care. I don't care enough. Um, uh, but should people be imprisoned for misgendering? No. No, they shouldn't. We're talking here in London. This is going out internationally and this is one of the 
reasons why a lot of top talent in film and comedy are using the streaming services now, making this sort of content first and foremost to, to go out on streaming uh, services. Do you think this means that our kind of slightly grim British humour, and I would say your character, Tony in Afterlife, as well as his other traumas, got a big dose of quite British sense of humour. Does it travel differently now that we're all watching the same um, shows? No, I think um, I've found it when I do my stand-up. I, I don't have to change anything. Outside cultural references, um, I wouldn't talk about the winner of Britain's Big Brother in America, but I'm dealing with bigger subjects. So um, when, I, when I'm talking uh, about... Um, you know, world issues, everyone gets them. Obviously, if they, they speak English, um, which everyone at my gigs do, um, and there's a lot of people in the world that speak English. Uh, no, it, it, it's the same. People are the same. If it so were, the fact if it, that this is set in a part of North London, and I think some of the contrast is around his behaviour, with, with a quite well-behaved part of London that we see him often walking about, in, and then probably you know, going into other people's worlds, slightly more dangerous worlds. Yeah, he goes, he ventures into the underbelly of society where he wouldn't normally have gone because he had a perfect home life, and now, now he's looking for something. And that's universal. It's universal. Is, oh, are people thought, office, people were confused when the office um, uh, worked around the world. It was shown in 90 countries in its, its normal state, then remade in eight. Um, it's because the, it looked um, uh, quintessentially English and parochial, but it wasn't. It wasn't. It was about characters. It was about people getting on and a boss they didn't like or wanting to be famous or becoming 40. It was all the issues were absolutely universal and global. I was about to say the office was remade in different territories. Oh, that's so they could be more um, culturally relevant as well. And in there, and the only English-speaking remake was uh, the American one, and that's because America, uh, it, it's America. They want their own. So that idea that, that there could be a kind of default mode of international humour—that's maybe some of the questions that we're asking as things go kind of super global. That doesn't trouble you at all. No, because everything I've done has just accidentally gone global. You know, The Office around the world, extras around the world, the first co-pro with BBC and HBO, the podcast around the world. Everything's around the world now because of the internet. What I don't do is try and make it for any particular demographic or country. I just I, I do it in English because that's the only language I can speak and I write about what I know and what I'm passionate about and and uh, people get it, people get it. And that particularly sort of grim British humour, one of our columnists was writing that, also referencing some of your work, that he thought had something to do with a kind of joy in or a perverse joy in decline. And for some people, the background of Brexit is there on that question. Does our political considerations, big P, influence your work? I don't, I, no, I don't. I keep politics, big P, out of my work. Um, just because if you're relying on an audience agreeing with you politically... You know, you might get a round of applause, but you've lost something comedically. And I think a joke uh, should be able to be laughed at, at, at everyone from every walk of life and every demographic and every um, political persuasion. And we've seen recently that it doesn't mean anything anyway. I don't think there's, there's no such thing as left and right anymore. It's no one looks at an argument anymore. They look at who's saying it. It's a... It's falling into sort of like just tribes of your your for us or against us, and with this new thing of you 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 have to agree with everything someone ever believed in, or they're cancelled. You know, it's ludicrous. Um, uh, 
I mean, most recently, John Wayne was cancelled for a, a slightly un-PC interview he did 48 years ago. So he had to try and think of what people in 48 years will think of his views. But I think, in fact, you've covered yourself on that one, haven't you? You were tweeting that you apologised for anything offensive you might have said in the past and that you might say again in the future. Exactly. I will, I, all I can promise is you won't like everything I say, um, but I'm going to keep saying it. You've also said that dogs, and perhaps only dogs, can save humanity. So I yeah. wondered, have you got a particular breed that you think could be our redemption? Oh, the best breed is rescue. I think dogs are perfect. Every, the last dog I see is my favourite dog. They're all amazing. They're beautiful. It's the closest thing I get to spirituality. Uh, I wish I could bottle dog. I go out every day to meet a random dog. It's, it's my drug. Ricky Gervais, on your, your dogs and drugs, thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. And we'd love to hear what you think. Are there limits to what can or should be laughed at? And what kind of mutt might just save the world? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And please do take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. You know David Brent would do the same. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. The Economist.